The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Thanks, team. Let me add my greeting and uh, say Happy Mother's Day to all the mamas in the house. Uh, We certainly do appreciate and celebrate uh, you gals on this day especially. I've had uh, the treat of just, um, my mom was in the first service, but just having such a loving and caring and nurturing mother. Uh, so no one appreciates a mom more than I do. And, uh, but more than anything, I appreciate that, she is, uh, appreciate that she has set such an example in following Christ for me and my family. And, uh, and then I married another one who is just an unbelievable mom. Matter of fact, on the way uh, to church this morning, I had, um, I had two of the boys with me, Luke and John. And, and um, and I, we were just talking about mom and Mother's Day, and, uh, and Luke said, Dad, without mom, we would be like Rocky in Rocky One." <laughs> and so I was kind of thinking about Rocky and Rocky. So think with me for a minute. Rocky, before Apollo, before the fame and fortune, before, you know, Paulie's robot that kind of cleaned and whatever, but before any of the, you know, Drago, any of the lights, any of the, it was Rocky and Rocky One. I said, Luke, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, Dad, I mean... We'd have no good food to eat. We would have no one to help us dress our clothes. And we would have nothing. <laughs> Rocky and Rocky won. We'd be bums. Uh, but as much as I felt incredibly underappreciated in that moment, <laughs> I did tend to agree with him that uh, we would sure be missing a lot without mom. And so uh, let me just say, happy Mother's Day. So thankful for all of our moms. Yeah, amen. Well, if you'll turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter two, that's where we are. Somebody asked me in the back, uh, what are you teaching today for Mother's Day? I said, Pergamum, the the classic Mother's Day text. Um, No, uh, we're gonna continue in our series this morning. I... um, uh, uh, seven letters to set for seven churches. This is not the entire book of Revelation. We are in Rev 2 and 3, uh, a specific point. John has been exiled to Patmos, this rock prison. He has this uh, vision of uh, Christ coming in judgment, and that's chapter 1. And then he has uh, Christ dictates to him seven letters for seven churches in Asia Minor. Everyone, and this is chapters 2 and 3 of Rev, everyone has a historical application for that church in that day but they all have moral application for every church in all of the church age. And so we heed the words of Christ. Don't just wanna hear, we wanna heed because these letters tell us not just what Christ loves about his church, but also what he loathes about his church. We see Christ's heart for the church. And so we're in a series called Seven Letters to Seven Churches and we are in the third church. We've looked at Ephesus, we've looked at Smyrna, and today we look at Pergamum. If you would stand to your feet, Rev chapter two, we're gonna read verses 12 through 17. I'll read these as we stand together. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of the mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. Have a seat. 
Father, thank you for this morning that we can celebrate uh, mothers. And, and really, when we think mothers, I think most of us just think, think love, just this unconditional love, like that quote we heard from Dr. Keller, that mothers do such a good job of laying down their lives for us. And in that way, they display the gospel, that um, you loved us enough to send your only begotten, and he loved us enough to give his life perfectly on that cross, in our place for our sin. That was a picture of perfect love displayed. And so we thank you that mothers give us that tangible expression of the love of Christ in our lives in a special way. And uh, Lord, I do pray for those who are um, experiencing just sadness today, whether it be the loss of a mom, maybe even the recent loss of a mom, maybe the desire to be a mom that has not thus far been fulfilled. Uh, I just ask for all of us that the Lord be our portion today, that that verse be real in our lives, and uh, that we would cling to you and rejoice in you. Lord, as we walk through this text, this letter to the church of Pergamum, let us heed these words. Father, I must decrease and you must increase. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So a little about Pergamum uh, in a way of historical context. Uh, like Ephesus and Smyrna, it also was a cultural center of idol worship, but, uh, but there was more to Pergamum. Pergamum was called by Pliny, who was a great Roman philosopher and uh, commander in their army. Uh, he said in uh, 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 first century BC, he said that uh, Pergamum was the most distinguished city in the world. He said that because they uh, they uh, great emphasis on literature. They had um, great emphasis on medicine. Uh, great emphasis on uh, science. Like like they were kind of a cultural center of the arts. Matter of fact, they had uh, the second largest library in the known world. They were known for their two hundred thousand volume, and this was all handwritten volumes library. It's especially famous because Mark Antony, when he was falling in love with Cleopatra. He sent the library of Pergamum uh, to Cleopatra to try to woo her. Uh, so Cleopatra was much like my own wife who loves books. I think if I could deliver 200,000 handwritten volumes, I would have a lifetime of brownie points um, as she sits among those books. Um, so library, huge, this, this uh, emphasis on medicine and, and uh, medical treatment. And so it's so a most distinguished city, Pliny said, in the whole world. And yet, uh, just like the other two cities we looked at, so much idol worship, uh, many temples to many gods and goddesses, but they kind of had the big three there in Pergamum. They had a temple to Zeus. You may have seen pictures of this. That temple looked like it was a big throne with a, with a bust of Zeus sitting in it. And so you may have seen that, just huge statue of a huge throne. That's the temple of Zeus right there at Pergamum. And uh, that was kind of the center of Zeus worship in the area. And then they also had a temple to Caesar. Uh, and uh, it, it was the center of Caesar worship in all of uh, the Roman province. A matter of fact, um, Pergamum was the capital of the Roman Empire from 250 BC all the way up until the time this letter was written, and so uh, capital of the Roman Empire in Asia, and so that was a uh, that was a, a key center place where everyone would come and profess with their lips, "Curia Caesar," that Caesar is Lord. It happened there in Pergamum, uh, just like Smyrna had that the Dia Roma, where Rome was personified as a goddess. Well, here was the altar of Caesar here in Pergamum, and then the the, the third of this uh, of this kind of uh, false worship trinity, uh, so to. Say, was a temple to Asclepios. Now, other places had a temple to him, but this was the hub. This was the center of Asclepios' worship. He was the god of healing. Again, false god, but he was worshiped as the god of healing. He was also the snake god. His symbol was that rod with the snake wrapped around it. Still see it in medical community today. Uh, that's the sign of Asclepios. And people would come from all over the region to spend one night, if you were sick, 
By the way, it was for physical healing. It was also for people in depression. Uh, it was people that felt spiritually lost and needed a word from God. So every kind of sickness, you went to the temple of Asclepius, you spent the night. And this is crazy, but you would lay on the ground amidst a pit of snakes. And they would slither across your body all night long. And it was said that you would have a dream, and you would take your dream the next morning after sleeping under the slithering snakes to the oracle, and the oracle would uh, speak into your life so that you had not just physical healing, but spiritual healing. My theory, I didn't see this in any commentary, but my theory is that people were so freaked out sleeping under the slithering snakes that they just ran out of there, and people saw it and thought they were rejuvenated, when really they were just freaking out. I can't imagine going to the temple of Asclepius for healing, but they were packing in from all over the Roman world uh, for that. And, and boy, does that not sound like a just demonic experience? Uh, going to a false god for healing through the medium of a serpent. All too often told tale in scripture. And so uh, that is what is happening. There's, there's Pergamum, okay? There's kind of the picture of this distinguished city in ways with this crazy Satan worship in ways. And so that's what's happening. And Jesus gives a letter to the church. And he says to the angel or the messenger or the pastor of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Striking difference in the um, intro of this letter from that of Ephesus and Smyrna. Ephesus was the one who holds the stars and the lampstands, meaning I hold the church in my hands. It was kind of this reminder of my sovereignty to a church that's left its first love. Then Smyrna, it was the, the one who has died and is uh, now alive again, the first and the last. It was a reminder that he is sovereign over our su suffering and he's with us in our suffering so that we might endure the suffering of this world. This letter is uh, strikingly different. The one who, as it says, has the sharp two-edged sword. If you got a letter from the Lord and it said, Dear Steve, uh, Dear Tim, uh, dear Molly, uh, dear Ashley, dear Carissa, from the one who holds the two-edged sword, you, like me, would kind of go, oh, like that, that kind of that gets your attention. Like I'm, I'm a little bit nervous when I see this is from the one with the sword. Pergamum's meant to be nervous when they receive this. Like there's something going on in their body that is not okay with the Lord. There's something that he will say, I have against you. And he's going to get to it, but he starts by saying, in the sword, Christ in Rev 19, he comes with the sword. That means I'm going to bring judgment and justice. Pergamum, if you don't heed these words, harvest, if you don't heed these words, you will receive judgment from me. He is the one with the sword. So he starts with a commendation. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Again, a lot could be said about Satan's throne. Suffice it to say, this is the place where you went to a temple of a false god for physical, emotional, and spiritual healing. A oracle spoke into your life after you laid under the slithering medium of serpents. This is, the, this is where Satan's throne is. There is a throne, literally, with a statue of Zeus on it. This is where you proclaim Caesar is God. Yet you, this little church, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, or you might have a footnote that says your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, again, where Satan dwells. The idea is, as a church, they're not denying Christ. In a day where everyone is forced to cry out Caesar as Lord, they're not denying Christ. They're not turning from the faith and before we get to what they are doing, he does, he does specifically um, commend one servant. There's one named Antipas who was killed and is holding fast to the faith. Jesus says, I know this. I see this. This is really good. Um, by the way, the way Antipas was killed is, uh, I can't even imagine this, but he was thrown into a bronze bull. 
there was a bull used for uh, cooking f- uh, food, meat sacrificed to idols. It was, for, it was specifically used for pagan worship. They threw him in it, they turned the heat up, and he was roasted. And he was roasted because he wouldn't deny Christ and worship Caesar. And Jesus says, there are some in your body that, boy, you will not deny me. You won't turn from me. Antipas, by the way, he gives him his own name. In Rev 1, Jesus is called the faithful witness. He said, Antipas, there's the faithful witness. He's proud of Antipas. Antipas is the example. He stood for me in this place where Satan dwells. But he goes in verse 14, he says, but I do have a few things against you. So in this place where they're not denying Christ, here's what they are doing. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now let me talk about this. I'm not gonna turn there for the sake of time, but in the book of Numbers, there's the story of Balak and Balaam. It's in Numbers 22 through 24. Numbers is my favorite Old Testament book, um, especially after you get through those first 10 chapters. You get this incredible action-packed adventure of the people of God leaving Sinai Uh, going up to um, Kadesh Barnea, the staging ground to look into the promised land, send out Joshua and Caleb and the spies. They come back, they say, the land is beautiful, we can't take it. We're like grasshoppers, they'll lick us up like the the ox licks up grass and the people freak out and they try to stone Joshua and Caleb because they say, no, let's take the land. And God sees these people in their disbelief and says, okay, okay, my people have to trust me. Joshua, Caleb, I'm gonna, I'm gonna preserve you for the purpose of leading the next generation into the land. This generation is gonna have to die off. So they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. By the way, in that 40 years, God's pre, uh, uh, goal is, his primary focus with them is to teach them to trust him. And so every day they wake up and he gives them manna from heaven. No other food, you gotta trust me. If there's no manna, you're gonna die. But trust me, I'll give you manna every day. This is a great 40-year teaching lesson. God always provides for your needs. Saturday you get to collect double because he's not gonna bring it on the Sabbath. Uh, We're all gonna rest. But every other day you only collect what you need for that day. You learn to trust me. That's what they wouldn't do. And there's gonna be a generation die off and this generation of orphans is gonna arise. The only thing they know is we can trust our God. At the end of 40 years, we got a slide here, He's going to bring this generation um, through the south, uh, just south of the, uh, the Dead Sea, through what's called the Kingdom of Eden, into the Kingdom of Moab. Ultimately, he's going to get right up there next to Jericho, but on the other side of the river, on the east side of the river. That's where Moses is going to give them Deuteronomy, duet nomos, the second giving of the law. They will then cross the river, the Jordan River, conquer Jericho, then divide up the promised land, and uh, God will fulfill his promises among a generation that's faithful. Now, here we are, 40 years wandering, going through south in the kingdom of Edom, and uh, they've been wandering 40 years, but all of a sudden they take out Sihon, they take out Og, like here come the Israelites. And in Moab, there's a king called Balak. Balak sees what they're doing and is a little bit concerned. Well, he's a lot of bit concerned. He goes, hey, they're gonna, they're gonna take us out. So he hires this esoteric diviner from Mesopotamia. I don't know how you found, find this guy, but he's got a reputation, his name's Balaam. He hires this uh, diviner to come and curse Israel so that Israel can't take us out like they did Sihon and Og. Y'all with me? So they hire Balaam. Balaam comes, to, he's paid to pronounce a curse, he pronounces a blessing. Balak says, what was that all about? Let me give you a little more money. Curse him. Balaam gets up there, blesses him. Third time, I told you to curse him, now you gotta get this right. Balaam gets up there, blesses him. Balak's going, what is the problem? Balaam says, look, here's the problem. Every time you tell me to curse him, God tells me to bless him. And so I gotta say what God says. And so finally, uh, 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 Balaam's final oracle, his fourth oracle, he says that there's gonna be a star rise out of the tribe of Judah that will reign over all the earth. (laughs) Not exactly what Balak was looking for. It's where we get our Christmas promise. And so uh, 
that's what happened, Numbers 22, 23, 24. Now, here's what happened in 25. You thought Moab was just toast. It didn't work. Their guy couldn't get the job done. Israel was not cursed. They were blessed. But in Numbers 25, Moab does something pretty shrewd. They put forth their women. And the women meet the soldiers of Israel. And they say, what you guys eating over there? And the soldiers of Israel say, manna. What's that? Ah, it's kind of like this dried up bread. Sounds really not so great. Hey, we got brisket over here. Y'all want some brisket? And the guys go, God, what is brisket? All we know is bread. And then they smell it. And it's coming right out of the, you know, the, the, the fire. And man, it's just perfect. And it's just, oh, it's moist and lean. And brisket, y'all ever had brisket? I mean, is anybody here? Okay. Bread or brisket? This is an easy one. Now, here's what the Israelites didn't know. That meat was being sacrificed to false gods. And the Israelites said, man, we want that. And so they ate. And then the, when they finished eating, the women said, now here's what we do next. We participate in sexual union to honor the gods that this meat was supposed to do. Israelites are going, you don't say. And so now they're in this just incredible sexually immoral relationships with the Moabite women who have now become one. They, they brought them into union of false gods to make peace with them. This, this was a people of God that no longer were separate. No longer were they holy unto God. No longer did they represent uh, his holiness and his faithfulness on earth. They were compromised. Now, what we see here in Rev, by the way, we don't see it in Numbers. In Numbers, you just think, huh, that was an interesting strategy. I wonder where they came up with that. Well, here's where they came up with it. Balaam taught Balak. He said, look, I can't curse him, but I'll give you a tip. You could probably show up with some brisket and your ladies, and you could get them to worship the gods of your day. And Balak said, that's it. We can compromise the people of God, and they can become us, and we can become them. We'll have their blessing, and, and they'll stand with us in, in, uh, in the worship of false gods, and, we, and we'll just, in the name of tolerance, we'll have unity. Y'all with me on this? Okay, that was from Balaam. Listen to me, gang. In Pergamum, it was happening. By the way, you, you, it's happening in America, okay? It, and it doesn't look just like that. I think it actually looked just like that in Pergamum. Like, like literally, I think it was food sacrifice to idols was a big problem, and sexual immorality and the worship of false gods was a huge problem. Why do we think that? Because in Acts, 9, uh, Acts 15, when the council met in Jerusalem in 50 AD, the gospel was going forth to Gentiles. The Gentiles had all kind of baggage from pagan life, and the Jews that were uh, uh, witnessing to them, the Jewish Christians who were telling them about Christ, were saying, okay, you gotta ditch all your old life, and here's what you need to get circumcised, here's the moral code that we follow, here's the hygienic code, here's the feast, here's the festival calendar, and these guys are going, they're just piling them down with all these rules and moral laws, and they're going, gosh, I don't know if I can do it. I just wanted Christ. I just wanted forgiveness and life in him instead of this death in my sin. Well, I don't know. And so the council meets and the apostles, Peter, Paul, the apostles decide, let's not yoke them with all these rules and regulations. Let's not say you have to be a Jew to be a Christian because you don't. Let's just say, love Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give your life to him. And then they put an asterisk and don't eat the food sacrificed to idols and don't participate in the sexual immorality that goes with it. Don't compromise 
who you are in Christ by worshiping the gods of your day. Now they said that in this day, so I think Pergamum, that's exactly what was happening. I think there was still the problem of mixing the worship of Christ and along with the worship of the gods of the day. It would be like us today, being in church every Sunday, worshiping Jesus Christ, and yet bowing a knee to the God of materialism Monday through Friday. It's not a forsaking of this world, it's an adjoining. I'll take Christ and I'll take the world. It's Christ and when the theology of the New Testament is Christ alone. That's the problem in Pergamum. Do you see it? That's what's happening there. Um, That's why Jesus says, I have this against you. And he goes on to say, I have something else against you. I also have, he says, and there's something very similar. So you also have, you, um, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This was a heresy um, that a, 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 a well-known teacher, an influential teacher who was an apostate named Nicholas was teaching. And the teaching went like this. Once you are a Christian, God's grace covers your sin. So if you want to participate in the cultural idolatry of the day, if you want to pinch a little fragrance to Caesar and receive a blessing from Rome along with Christ, that's fine. That's fine. Any sin you commit is is, is covered by grace. And so grace became your license to sin. This is why Paul goes nuts when he's writing Romans 6. Like he's coming undone. He goes, oh, can you imagine misappropriating the gospel any worse than that? How can someone who has died to their sin live in it any longer? Anybody get saved recently in here? Can you imagine going back? Before you got saved, go back and live in your life of sin. You're going, that's the most repulsive thing I can think of. Grace set me free from that. It didn't afford me the opportunity to live in it. That is a misunderstanding and misappropriation of grace. And and by the way, that's what was happening in Pergamum. Balaam and Nicolaitans, this thing was happening where we get Christ and the sin of the day. You see it? Jesus says, look, you're not denying me, but the problem is some among you are participating in idolatry, living like pagans. You're doing nothing about it. Now, it did say some. Some are living this way. Some. So you might say, well, I mean, it's just some. Like, maybe we could, I mean, maybe it's only a few. You know what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5? He says, a little leaven leavens the whole batch. Just a little bit, and you will see uh, uh, worldliness take over the church. Um, as a matter of fact, the context of that, it's gross, but there's a, a, um, a man in that church in Corinth who is sleeping with his stepmother. And, uh, and, and here's where it gets really weird. You see that in the first verse of 1 Corinthians 5, and, and you read it and you go, oh, in the next verse, and they were arrogant. What are they arrogant about? Paul's going, you should not be arrogant. Here's a, it was a badge of honor. They wore tolerance as a badge of honor to say, look how we boast in the grace of God. In our body, there's all kind of sin. This was the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They boasted, they were arrogant in their worldliness. It was the ultimate seeker church. And Paul said, you shouldn't be arrogant. You should be grieving the brother that's in sin. For a little leaven leavens the bunch. Be careful, harvest, lest we become Pergamum. Let me ask the question, how is the church supposed to react when there's egregious, outward, unrepentant sin in the life of a brother or sister? By the way, every church is gonna have 
to deal with worldliness. You know why? Because the church is made up of people, and we are worldly. I haven't gotten rid of all, trust me, there's worldliness in Kenan. God is sanctifying me. It's a process, and I know I'm not there yet because I still struggle with worldliness. I bet you do too. So what's the church to do? What's the church's response? Well, here's what, here's what Paul wrote to the Galatians. If your brother is in sin, here's what you do. It says, restore him. Don't be passive. Don't be silent. Don't be arrogant. Restore him. How do you restore him? It says you go to him in a spirit of gentleness and you rebuke him. You don't, it's not pharisaicalism. It's not how could you. To say how could you is to not understand your own susceptibility to sin. That's to be self-righteous. Jesus was harshest on those who were self-righteous. Don't go to him in judgmentalism tone. Go to him in a spirit of gentleness and concern. Hey, brother, this concerns me. Uh, This is destructive in your life. This is a compromise of your witness and that of our church, and I love you, and let's talk about this. There's a godly rebuke. Jesus, in his own words, you know what he said in Matthew 18? If your brother sins against you, here's what you need to do. Don't be silent. Don't be mad. Don't be judgmental. Go to him. Talk to him about the offense, and if he listens, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen, get two or three others. Go to him, and in the, in the, in the uh, hearing of two or three witnesses, talk about the offense. Because maybe you're the one with the wrong perception. Let two or three, uh, take two or three elders. Let them sit with you. Let them talk through where is the offense so that we can all repent, reconcile, and live holy unto God. Don't just sit back and gossip about the guy that offended you. Don't just sit back and be a, a spirit of bitterness towards him. Go, bring witnesses. Now, if he refuses to repent, and it's clearly unrepentant sin in his life, then he says, Jesus says, take it to the whole body. Now, why would we do that? Are we just trying to embarrass him? Of course not. The whole body can pray for a brother. The whole body can pray for a sister. The whole body can reach out and say, brother, sister, don't go that way. A, a dog returns to his vomit, not a son or a daughter of the king. Don't go back. Keep running the race. Let's run it together. Let me encourage you. How can I help you with this? And if a brother or sister refuses to repent of his sin and wants to live as, a, as they some were doing in Pergamum, then Jesus says at that point you must treat them like a non-believer. Why? Because they're choosing to live as a non-believer. It's turning them over to themselves. Now, can I ask you a question? Have you ever been in a church that does this? By the way, some of you said, Jesus said What? Many churches don't even acknowledge Matthew 18. Far fewer churches actually practice it. Why is that? It's pretty clear and it's incredibly loving. I'll tell you why, I think. I think we're a church that doesn't like to deal with the mess of other people's lives. We don't even like to deal with the mess of our own lives. We certainly don't want to be known It's far easier not to judge somebody else so that you don't have to be under the scrutiny of a microscope either. Like, I'll leave you alone, you leave me alone. Let's just, if there's a little bit of leaven, it's okay, even though Paul and Jesus say, no, 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 you're to be wholly set apart from me. I think we naturally slide into the sin of Pergamum where there is the sin of worldliness in our body, but we're silent about it. And I think it's because underneath all the facade of the messiness, we would rather be a church with a positive spirit and growing numbers. We're far more enamored with numerical growth than we are with holiness. 
You know, no, I'm gonna give you a little preview. Not one of these seven letters will Jesus talk about how many people are in the church. He never talks about it. Came to seek and to save the lost, but he never rebukes anybody for not doing enough to attract lost people. That's not gonna be one. He, almost every one of these has the thread of your holiness being set apart unto me for my purposes. Let the world know who you are by the way you love me and love one another. Be set apart, be different, be consecrated, be holy. It's everywhere. And my fear, honestly, is that a harvest, um, it's God has, has, has brought many people to be a part of this, and I'm grateful for that. I love our church family. My fear is that one day we would get so impressed by numbers that we would forget, that we would, uh, or, or maybe we just would be silent about sin in our midst. We wouldn't want to deal with the mess. It, it'd be easier to brush it under the rug and just keep going and blowing, that we would care more about worldly success than holiness and then faithfulness. We're always talking about Discover Harvest and what it means to be a member here. Can I tell you that there's, there's very few things more important to us than encouraging you. If you're a believer, if you have a testimony and a witness, you're a Christian, and you're coming, you go, hey, I love Harvest. I think this is, I think this is gonna be my church home. I don't know about that whole membership thing. I just don't like to, I'm, I don't like to really make commitments and who knows what. Else. Listen, we urge you towards membership. It has nothing to do with numerical growth. Nobody's keeping score. It has everything to do with faithfulness. If you're out there and you're a Christ follower, we want you to be faithful following Jesus and we want you to help us be faithful. So we covenant to walk this thing together. Like we need you, hear me say that. We need you to help us live lives that are set apart from God. We don't need you on the sideline. We don't need you as a spectator. We don't need you as a consumer. We don't need you to enjoy the show. We need you to get in the messiness of our lives with us and be a part of exhorting and encouraging and edifying us to run the race God has set before us. We need you. I need you. I need your prayers as a pastor and as a brother in Christ. I need uh, your wisdom. Um, I need your encouragement. And you know what? When I fall into sin, when I do something foolish or stupid or offensive, I need your godly rebuke. And the truth is, you need it too. None of us were meant to run alone. Man, it's quiet in here. Not quiet. None of us are meant to run this race alone. If you think you are, you don't watch the Discovery Channel. Because if you watch the Discovery Channel, it doesn't take long. It's pretty much a part of the daily diet of the Discovery Channel. I'll flip through, and sometimes I'll stop just long enough to see a quick lion hunt. And when you see those lion kind of down in the grass, and they're going to attack those antelope, they, they, they just kind of lunge at them, and the antelope split. And there's, you know, there's like 200 that go that way, but five that go this way. And those lionesses kind of gather around these five. And then they jump in there again, and, and four of them go that way, and one of them goes this way. And guess what? That one is dead. In fact, I have to watch the rest of it kind of like this. Like, it, it's bloody, you know what First Peter says about our enemy, our adversary, Satan? It says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know what you are when you're going, yeah, this is where I'm gonna be, but I'm not really gonna be a part of it. I'm not gonna imbibe myself in the gospel community here. I'm gonna kinda, I can, do, I can handle this by myself. Guess what just happened? The whole pack just went this way and you just went this way. And you know what we're all gonna be doing? It's gonna be nasty. We need the church. And the instruction Jesus gave us is the most loving instruction imaginable. When you become a member at Harvest, it's not like joining a country club. 
It's not like, hey, just pay your dues, show up whenever you want, and uh, we hope you have a good time. There's a place for that at a country club. That's not the church. Can I tell you what the church is? The church is a body, it's a family. It's literally like uh, joining a family. Here's what you know about a family. That means you see all the warts. You know, you know everybody's strengths. You know what everybody brings that way. You know also know everybody's weaknesses. You know everybody's sin. You know everybody's sinful tendencies. You know the junk. And guess what? You're known in the family. You don't hide in a family. You allow yourself. And here's the best part about the family. Uh, what's meant to be true of a family, even in light of all the junk that everybody knows about everybody, you're committed to one another. You love one another. You don't leave one another. That's the church. We're a covenant community that says we're gonna run this race together. Like, like that's our only chance to make it to the finish line. That's what God calls us to do and even tells us what to do within that. Watch out for sin because you're all susceptible to falling. So if you fall, you want a gospel community that's gonna come in gentleness, loving, not judgmental, but not tolerant, and they're gonna speak truth into your life so you can repent and you can continue to follow me and not fall into this cultural idolatry and your witness is gone and your life is destroyed. Amen? Uh, one thing we have is a church covenant. What does it mean to be a member? We go through that and discover harvest. Every members meeting, we recite it again together. We remind ourselves of what we're committed to. Let me just give you four of the phrases. I won't give you all of them. We will seek to walk together in brotherly love to exonize an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will endeavor to invest deeply into relationships across this church for the purpose of knowing, loving, and serving one another and being mutually edified in Christ. We will rejoice in one another's joy. We will endeavor with tenderness and compassion to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world. Listen, denying ungodliness and worldly lust and pursuing Christ in community with authenticity and transparency. We need you and you need us. We're meant to run this race together. Can I tell you in Pergamum, this is their problem? You're not denying me. The problem is Christ and instead of Christ alone. The problem is embracing the sin of your day and the problem is no one's saying anything about it. There's no godly rebuke. Nobody seems to care and, and what's happening is you're letting the witness be snuffed out. The salt is losing its saltiness. Y'all remember what Jesus said about that? If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It can't, ideas, it becomes worthless. We don't wanna become a church that is worthless. Um, I told the story last week, told a lot of stories, told the story of Jerome and John Bradford and Stephen who gave their lives in order not to compromise with this world, in order not to confuse worship of, of the one true God with the worship of false gods. They were willing to give their life for that. And uh, there was one story I wanted to tell but I ran out of time, and I'm glad I did because it's about a woman. And here on Mother's Day, I wanna tell a story of a faithful woman. There's a woman in the... Um, uh, late second, early third century named um, Perpetua. You may know this story, Perpetua and Felicitas. Uh, Felicitas was a slave girl in the household, the Roman household where Perpetua's father was the, was the head. And uh, Perpetua, Felicitas shares the gospel with Perpetua, her and some of the other slaves that were Christians. Perpetua is this daughter of a, ch of, of a child of, of you know, great position in the community. She becomes a Christian. She was worshiping in secret with the, with the other Christians who were mostly slaves, 
And uh, one day the Roman army busted in, kind of like in the uh, underground church in China, they busted in and said, look, you're all under arrest. Perpetua's father came in and said, oh no, there's some mistake, that's, that's my daughter, she's not one of them, she must be trying to help them, I don't know what she's doing here. And Perpetua said, no dad, I am one of them. And he freaked out, what, what are you talking about? Don't, don't say that, they're, they're, going to, they're gonna do bad things to you. And she says, I'm sorry, and she goes with them. Well, she has a little infant, by the way, and uh, she's caring for this infant while she's uh, in prison. Her father, they're passing the infant back and forth, and the, uh, the home is taking care of the infant oftentimes. And so finally, the father comes to her and says, hey, Perpetua, uh, they're going to take all of you guys. I've gotten word. They're going to take you uh, before Caesar's uh, altar, and they're going to ask you to say, Curiae Caesar, that Caesar is Lord. And you must do this, Perpetua. If you don't do it, then um, they're going to kill you. Do it for me. Do it for your baby, but you must do it. And Perpetua says, and she, she's, uh, this whole thing is journal. It's one of the first accounts of a journaling the life of a martyr before it actually happens um, and following. It's incredible. And Perpetua writes, uh, Father, do you see that vase? And he says, yes. And she said, can it be called anything other than a vase? For a vase is what it is. She said, Father, I'm a Christian. I can't be called anything else. That is what I am. And so here's what her dad said. Fine. If you want to be a Christian, be a Christian. But go before the altar of Caesar and cry out, Curia Caesar. You don't, even, here's a, you don't even have to mean it. Just say it. Just give lip service for the sake of your child. Just say it. You can believe what you want to be and be what you want to be, but at least fake it. Storms out. The next day, she's brought along with all the other slaves one at a time. They go before Caesar. No one will uh, say Caesar is Lord. And Perpetua comes forward. And her father says, say it. And she says, Curia, Jesu. Jesus is Lord. And they take her to the arena. And they take her in with Felicitas. And they put these two women before all the people that are chanting for their blood and they release a wild heifer that knocks them around. Then they release two leopards that, that, that tear them up. And um, still not quite dead, a, a young novice soldier comes out. He's supposed to kill them, but all he does is further mutilate them. And so Perpetua finally takes the stab, Curia Hesu, and falls on the sword. Listen, when that arena saw Perpetua and Felicitas, and when the Roman guard who continued her journal after she died and after he professed Christ, when they saw them, they saw Christians. They saw those set apart from the world. They saw those who had counted their life worth nothing, that they may only finish the race. They saw those who were totally full with the joy of Christ and it wasn't from this world. They saw those who did not love their lives so much as to shrink away from death. They saw what it meant to be a Christian. What does the world see when they look at us? You know what I think they see? I think more often than not, they see Pergamum. They see a church where some, if not many, are given over to greed, given over to sexual immorality, given over to grace as a license to sin. Jesus said, I have this against you. Not against them, against you. 
you are mine and I am yours. And if you are going to meddle in the things of this world, if you're going to treat me as another God along with the gods you worship, then I will bring the sword of judgment. So here's the word that he gives us. Verse 16, he says, therefore repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one that conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone with a new name on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So let me just close with this. Hidden manna. The thought is, boy, if I leave all the stuff of this world to follow Jesus, I'll have nothing. And what the Christian knows is that when you lose your life for Christ, you have everything. What will sustain me? Where will I find my joy? He says, I'll give you hidden manna. You'll have food that no one else knows. Everybody will say, hey, what's in your diet? You know what they'll say? Why are you so full of joy in the midst of the same trouble that this world brings on us all? You know what you say? Hidden manna. Jesus told his disciples, I have food that you know nothing about. My food, he said, is to do the will of my Father in heaven. That was all he needed. And he was full. I want you to think right now of the most uh, godly Christ follower that you've ever known. Might be a mother or grandmother. It's interesting that we always think of godly women. At least I do. Maybe it's some patriarch of the faith. Maybe it's somebody in this church. Maybe it's a young man or woman. But I want you to think of the most godly, Christ-loving person that you've ever met. And with that person that you have in your mind, if we were to pass around a mic this morning and say, tell us about that person, you wouldn't, here's what you wouldn't hear. Yeah, kind of, kind of morbid about everything, just a lot, a lot of, you know, really dejected, kind of, kind of lives life defeated, but man, just really kind of holds fast to the faith. That any, anyone, no, nobody, that's not, you're like, whoa, that's nothing like the person I was picturing. You know what you've got in your head? This person who is so full. Their life probably wasn't easy. You probably know things that happened in their life. They experienced suffering just like we do. But this person was so full of joy in the midst of circumstance that you often wondered, what is it about him? What is it about her? I want what they have. They have hidden manna. Can I tell you what the hidden manna is? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And anyone who eats of me will be fully satisfied. You'll never hunger again. Hidden manna. I'll fill you with my presence. You'll never be in one. I will be your portion. And I'm gonna give you a white stone. The white stone in that day was a victor stone. When, you would run, uh, when an athlete would run a race, compete in the games, if you won, they gave you a stone, a white stone, and here's what they did. They carved into it your name, date, the event, and here's what that was. That was now your ticket to the victor's feast. Annually, they would have a feast for all the champions of all time, and you come and you got your stone, yeah, 40 years ago, I won the race over in Carthage, and they let you in to the feast. You're a victor. Jesus says, to those who consecrate themselves unto me, I'm gonna give you a victor's stone. 
not merely something that you put on your mantle, but this is your ticket to the feast. This is your ticket to literally go with all of the other victors before the presence of Christ and feast with him for eternity. You overcame, you're a victor, you're with me. What's that name? I can't tell you what the name is because it says no one will know it, but Jesus and you. I can tell you this, I got nicknames for all four of my boys. And I don't usually tell you guys what their names are. I call them by their proper names when I'm talking about them to you. But when I'm with them, I call them by their nicknames. Why don't I tell you their nicknames? That's between me and them. And it reeks of an intimacy I have with them that I don't have with all of you. Those names that no one knows but me and them tell them, I'm your daddy. And I know you in a way no one else does. And my love is secure forever. You're gonna get a white stone etched with a name that only he and you knows that reminds you he is your Lord. That's what your life declared. Your life said he's Lord and he says I am yours and you are mine. Come to the victor's feast forever. The victor's feast, the white stone, the hidden manna. It's for those who in a day that cries out, curious Caesar, their lives declare Curia, Jesu, let it be so of Harvest Church. Father, thank you that you have set us apart. You have, you have set us apart as holy. Like with nothing in and of ourselves is holy. You are holy. And yet we are seen through the lens of your blood. We are, we are forgiven and washed and freed. And then we're told be in community with one another, walk together so that when one of you stumbles, the rest can lovingly bring back to their feet. Let us live in repentance. Let us not become self-righteous. Let us not be judgmental. Let us not be hard-hearted and callous. When our sin is shown to us, let us not even be surprised. Let us be quick to repent. Let us be reconciled to one another as we are reconciled unto you. And let us walk in faithfulness let us be a body that is holy. The world looks at us and they know not only does it mean something to be a Christian, but I want what they have. I want that hidden manna. Let our testimony be one that heralds the gospel to the ends of the earth. May you be glorified in and through our body at Harvest Churches. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.